Jennifer Lee is a film and TV editor. You've seen some of her recent work if you've watched the 20th Century Studios comedy Rosalind, the pilot for the Golden Globe winning show Rami, or The Fallout, which won the Grand Jury Prize at South by Southwest and was acquired by Warner Brothers. But her road to editing films and shows was initially unexpected. Before she was editing moving images, she was editing comic books. One of the sensibilities that I've brought over from comic book editing was just really valuing an economy of storytelling. Jennifer and I speak about her experience pivoting into the film and TV editing world. I was like, I have an opening right now in my life to try something else before I settle into this permanent career if that's what I wanted to do. And then she breaks down her approach to crafting and editing scenes that effectively serve the story. We also discuss her initial years working on micro-budget indie films in New York City and how those experiences helped shape her work. That's all coming up shortly. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Jennifer Lee. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Jacob. How are you feeling? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. I'm I'm excited that we're finally talking. I know. This is a big pinnacle moment. Do you believe? <laughs> I believe now. Okay. I had some doubts. I worked through it. I went through a whole character arc. I'm glad. Now, now I'm good. It's good you went through an entire character arc because I feel like that's related to hopefully a lot of what we'll talk about today. <laughs> so we're in a good spot. I really am excited to delve into your process as a film and TV editor. But before we do, in your current life, of course, you edit films and shows. But in what you refer to as a past life, you edited comics working for Marvel and DC, working on projects such as Wolverine, Daredevil, Black Widow. What was the trajectory that led to moving into that space? And then from there, how did we wind up here? My first love has always been storytelling. And I feel like you, when you often like hear about these filmmakers and they're always like these white guys with baseball caps and they're like, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, I used to make movies on Super 8 in my backyard. It's like that Steven Spielberg documentary. And then he's like literally doing like war movies in his backyard. At the age of three. At the age of three. And so the narrative that you're given is that like you come out of the womb and you know you're going to be a filmmaker. And that was not me. You know, I didn't go to film school, but I was always a natural writer. I always loved stories. Um, and I was an English major in college and I grew up reading comic books. I have an older brother. We used to go to the sweet shop. He would buy whatever looked good on the spinner rack. I used to spend all my money on candy. Uh, but, you know, he got to like, he would grudgingly let me read his comics afterwards. So like, I think I got the better deal of that. What were some of those comics that you were reading? I mean, this was in the 80s. So uh, it was like Claremont X-Men. Um, I was, it was a lot of Marvel. There was like, you know, some Batman, some Spider-Man. And I remember growing up the cartoon that we were exposed to is like Amazing Spider-Man and Friends. And so superhero figures always sort of loom large in my childhood, I think, as they did for like a lot of people. But I I never really thought that I would, as I grew older and my tastes matured, I started reading comics that were uh, like literally branded for mature readers. And when I was in college, I was like, you know, an English major and I would be, you know, studying Milton. And then I would was reading comic books by Neil Gaiman and The Sandman. And so what I noticed is I saw, as I was reading these comic books, I never saw myself in them. I never saw myself as a creator in them. But what I did see in the credit boxes, I saw a lot of women's names and I saw that there was an editor. And 
I had no idea what the editor did. Like the comics are very much segmented by craft. And so there'd be a writer, there'd be a penciler, there'd be an inker, a uh, colorist, but um, there would also be like the editor. And there was an often an assistant editor. And, and I noticed that often those would be the only female names. And I gravitated toward that. You, I feel like you gravitate towards things people who are similar to you or have something in common to you. And so I started to follow editors and think, I really like the comics that this person is editing. So at this point, you're beginning to realize that there is a possibility that you could work in this space? It was sort of my dream job. I was like, I, I think I want to do this. So what is the process of moving towards this dream job? It took me a while to get there. And uh, I think I even in college when it was like senior year and I was becoming clear I would need to get a job. I like called Warner Brothers because DC Comics is owned by Warner Brothers. And, cold like, call? Called Human Resources. I cold nice. called them and I was like, How? I would I would like to submit my resume. <laughs> like I'm about to graduate from college. And they were like, oh, it's send a resume, you know, send it here. And I just imagined that like if I sent it, it, would, it was like that final scene from like Raiders of the Lost Ark and it, like with the box, <laughs> like where they're putting the Ark in the warehouse, like just goes on for miles. Never to be seen again. Yeah, that's what they would do with my resume. And so I, I don't even think I sent it in because I was like, I had no connections. Okay, so what do you do? And so I pursued a publishing job, but I was in New York. I was in New York and DC Comics had their headquarters in New York. And so I ended up, they had, there was this gallery down on Watt Street, sort of in Soho, and it was called the Four Color Images Gallery. And it was run by Ken and Laura Sanzel. Um, and Ken Sanzel is now a filmmaker. And so you would go and like any gallery opening, there would be free booths and pretzels and like all the industry players would come for the free booths and to network. And so there was an art director at the place where I was working right out of college and he started up a friendship. Uh, his name was Charlie Hunt. And he saw that I was reading comics. He liked comics. He's like, hey, have you read Preacher? Like, like you know, we, we and we would talk about it. He's like, you should come with me to these gallery openings. And that's where I eventually started hobnobbing with some people and like met like the first time I met an editor whose name I recognized, I was like, oh my God, I, I know your work. And like, I know, like, how do I get in? Like, how does this work? Like, I've been working as an editorial assistant at this like direct mail book club, but it was a lot of the work that I was getting. It was like a lot of really entry level, you know, publishing work. Right. And she's like, well, we actually have an opening. We're going to be hiring soon. So like, I literally, it was just pure dumb luck. And I eventually, and like, that was literally like, I didn't just want to break into comics. I specifically wanted to break in to the Vertigo imprint at DC Comics. So so it was meant to be. Somehow I had just happened to sort of meet somebody at the right time. And I had enough experience at that point of like entry-level editorial work. And I became an assistant editor. And so I, were, I ended up working at DC Comics for like close to four years. And then uh, eventually I left and then I ended up at Marvel. As an editor, what's your role? The role of the comic book editor is it's sort of similar to producing in that like it's a small enough industry that you have to wear a lot of hats. And so you are developing pitches with the writers you, and comic books are written in, in a script format. It's a little bit like a screenplay, except there's panel breakdowns on each page and you are editing those actual scripts. You are responsible for casting the talent, artists who can visually have an art style that will tonally match the story that you're telling. Not to take away from the glory of your first dream, but you've mentioned that in many ways working in comics helped prepare you for your work as a film and TV editor. What skill sets are you picking up along the way that future you will appreciate? As every stage is coming back to you as the editor, you're overseeing the vision is intact at every stage. 
and that everything there on the page visually is supporting the storytelling. And if it's not, then you, you have to figure out how to fix it. And so that combined with the fact that ser comics are still a serial format, they still come out every month. Um, there's an incredible discipline you need to have while you're working on a comic book. You know, when I started, it was like 24 pages and then it was 22 pages and now it's like 20 pages. <laughs> um, but uh, you have to deliver something that is going to make a buyer come back to a specialty comics store the next month. You know, a lot of that work, I worked over the over the course of almost 10 years in comics, like I worked on hundreds of issues of comics. And I took each one of those from script to page to final execution. And I did it over and over and over again. So at some point you decide that you are ready to leave the comic book world. When do you know that it's time? Eventually, because I, you know, I was at Marvel at the end of my career, I was sort of tired of working on, you know, um, stories with capes and tights. Uh, I, I, I tried to find a way to do stories that were meaningful to me within the confines of that superhero genre. Um, but you can't always do that, you know. For the most part, you know, I, I didn't want to just stay and become a lifer in comic books. Like I really enjoyed creative collaboration. I really love visual storytelling. But at the time I was in my like early 30s and I was like, if I stay here, I, at the time I was single, I didn't have a mortgage, like I had just gotten out of student loan debt. You know, I was like, I have an opening right now in my life to try something else. And before I sort of settle into this like permanent career, if that's what I wanted to do. That's interesting because, you know, you said from a young age, you set out to work in this space. And then all of a sudden you're realizing it's time to leave. Is that a difficult decision to make? Are you really negotiating that in terms of, well, this was what I always planned to do versus the unknown? I never said, you know, when I wanted to work in comics, if I wanted to work in this one particular space that did this, you know, that Vertigo comics. And then I did that. Then I moved on and ended up at Marvel. Like I, I would never had set out to do superhero comics. Somehow I ended up doing them. I enjoyed it. The fact that there's high demand in your job when you work in comic book editorial, there's always a sense of like, there's 20 people waiting outside to like take your job. Frothing at the mouth. You know, there's a stack of interns who are like, <laughs> yeah, I'll, do, I'll sign up and do that job and get underpaid to do that job, you know? <laughs> and I, I loved it. And I still love it, but just sort of me thinking, getting to a certain age and, you know, being past my 20s at the time, being like, is this, can I see myself doing this for the rest of my life? Is this, are these the kinds of stories that I want to tell or work on? And so, I mean, I was terrified to leave comics, but I was very tired and a little burned out. But also, I just knew that this was a window of time where I could take a risk and try something else and that that window, it doesn't always go away, but it certainly becomes harder to take that risk if you're, say, you've got kids or, you know, you have a mortgage or, you know, this shit that we used to do. Oh, am I allowed to say that? Hey, this say what you that... want. It's a free space here. <laughs> so as you get older, you realize that the stuff that worked for you uh, in your 20s, like as you leave your 20s, doesn't always work in your 30s, you know, and whether that's the kind of people you gravitate to, the kind of relationships you end up being in, the kind of work that you enjoy doing, you know, you learn things about yourself and, and you change as you grow up. And I was like, what else can I do? What I ended up doing was researching it and thinking like, you know, where else can I do visual storytelling? So are you looking at a big book of jobs? Like what oh, that you jobs. could do? What is what is the process for, you know, you're exactly. saying I want to transition from this space. Are you methodical in terms of what could be the next step in your life in terms of a career? I was 
Yes and no. In terms of the next step of the career, I was like, where else can I do visual storytelling and creative collaboration? And I literally had freelancers who told me this. I was like, I think I want to go into film. I was very careful about who I would talk to. They're like, well, you're going to leave. Like, what are you going to do next? Because I left without, you know, without, usually when you leave a company, they announce you're leaving. It's like, you're going to something. And I was like, I'm just taking a break. In my mind, I was like, maybe I'll go into animation or maybe I'll go into film. And I literally had people being like, um, you have to go to film school if you want to go to film. Like, good luck. You're going to spend another few years. Like, you got to go to grad school. Like, that's how you do it. I was like, I have a very specific sort of set of talents. And they could be applied to a lot of different spaces in film and a lot of different jobs in film. But it sounded like film editing when I kind of did some research. I was like, what? I might have Googled, like, where does it happen? You know, like, what job? You know, it was film editing. So it sounds like you've decided you're not going to film school. So what do you do? So I specifically sought a film editing school that had like a sort of a shorter program. A, I wasn't interested in going into debt to, to go to film school, but I, I knew I wanted to be a film editor. And so I literally looked it up. There was a school called the Edit Center. It was run by an actual working editor uh, at the time. What I noticed is that people who went through their program, A, they were getting taught by actual real working editors. And B, it seemed like a lot of the people who went through their program were like getting good credits on actual films. Like you would look on their alumni page and like so-and-so's film went to Sundance, so-and-so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And part of their program is that you would get an additional editor credit. Like you would get to edit an actual scene off an actual real movie and not just practice footage. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go there, you know? And so I ended up taking their six-week art of editing class. They asked me to stay on as a TA and then they actually hired me to be their um, director of operations. I was learning a lot and sort of working on the side as well. I did that for almost a year. And then I was like ready to go into like uh, assistant editing full-time. And then shortly after that, like made the jump. But it was also my intention to make the jump into actual editing where you're doing the creative choices as quickly as possible. But, you know, I had to sort of pay my dues as an assistant editor and get comfortable and like learn that stuff. But I was like, I'm going to move into the editing space as quickly as I can. And for me, what I was always impressing on those job interviews that I would do kind of early on with the indie films that were super low budget and had no money was that I was like, I have a whole career of storytelling that I could bring to bear for you. I'm willing to work for you for no money <laughs> or very little money. And I'm willing, and I have all of this experience. I will pay you to work for you. Yeah, I mean, seriously. So you're you're in New York, you're working for negative dollars. I don't know if that's actually true, but you're, you're working as an assistant editor. Just about. Yeah, just about. And what are you learning along the way about the craft as editing as you come from this comic book space? Are there any lessons that you look back on and you remember, okay, this is actually, you know, opening up my world to how I can work in this space effectively? I think working as an assistant editor in New York in the indie film space um, at the time that I was, was really about building connections with filmmakers. And this is something, there was something at the end when you would graduate from the six-week program at the Edit Center, you're sort of in this very idyllic space where you're editing your scene and you know, the director comes in of the film, like you get to work with them. It's like, yeah, I'm like really getting a taste of what it's going to be like. And then the last week when you're about to quote unquote graduate, they gently be like, okay, so now we're going to do the job talk. Oh no. What's the job talk? The job talk is like, <laughs> if you want to get a job as an assistant editor, like nobody cares about your reel. You know, what they care about is your person, because that's not what you're going to be doing. You're not going to be cutting for the most part as an assistant editor, certainly not as a rookie assistant editor. You're going to be given a lot of the grunt work 
And a lot of what's really important is your attitude. And can the editor stand to be in a small space with you? Do you have the social skills and the emotional intelligence to provide the support they need in a way that is unobtrusive and like your job is to support the editor and the editorial process? And a lot of that, it's a time-based medium. A lot of it's very unglamorous. What is the unglamorous work that you're doing? So I was doing line-by-line string outs, which is when you take every line of dialogue and every take and you cut them together into an organized fashion in the timeline so that when the editor and director want to see alternate choices for a take and a specific line reading of a take, you can just navigate to that place in the timeline and be like, here's every instance of that line being performed in every angle. And and you when you see things organized in that way, in sort of these small granular bites, you can really assess what is the angriest take? What is the most introspective take? Because they're all right next to each other and you're just comparing apples to apples like on a very granular level. And a lot of that, especially for the director, is very helpful because it helps them let go of... I had this one director I worked with who I think his, his other editor had called it set baggage. What's set baggage? Which is, you know, when you're on set and your your memory of the moment, like, oh, God, that was the take where we all cried. And that was the take that gave me, or that was the less angry version. And then months later, when you're in the edit room, you like go to that take and you might even pull it open and you go to your you know script supervisor notes and you're like, okay, this is that take. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm sure there was another one. That's not the one I'm thinking of. And, and then you play all and you're like, well, here's all of them. And then you see them all back to back and they're like, oh, I guess it. It felt different at the time, but maybe it's actually pretty similar to the other ones, you know. Anyways, doing string outs is incredibly time consuming. Um, it was how I learned how to edit. Um, and it was, uh, and, and I did that for, for other people. Are you working on fiction and nonfiction pieces? I worked in the doc space and I worked in the narrative space. So I get like, do I want to go into doc? Do I want to go into narrative? So in terms of what I learned, a lot of it was about building those connections. A lot of it was just literally getting... Th- up to the technical threshold of how do you learn the technology? And the technology is changing all the time, right? And the producers are always trying to hire somebody who knows the latest version of this software and who's done this before. And like everybody always wants to hire you for the experience that you've had. And creatively, if you've done a family dramedy, then you know, if somebody else has a family dramedy, they're like, you know what we should get? We should get Jenny Lee, who edited the Skeleton Twins. <laughs> Little plug right there. Just throwing out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but you know, everybody wants to to hire you for what you've already done. And the thing about, uh, you know, when you're assisting, the assistant editing job is a very often very technical job. It's way more technical often than the actual editing job is, is like, how do you figure out workflow? When you have no money and you're working on an indie project, like you have to hire the best person you can. You have like two days to hire the best person you can. Like you, what you're looking for, um, and what I tried to provide as an assistant editor trying to get hired is showing I have the temperament to figure it out. Like I'm determined, and I can do the research, and I have people I can ask, and can like look into the resources to solve the problem. So I might not know, but I'm not going to give up until I have exhausted all the avenues. And I and that that's what I look for when I'm hiring an assistant editor. Is okay. You may not have this ex- exact experience, but if you know you have the capacity to show that you can um, do it and figure it out, and and you have the sort of um, ability to assess like what is needed at what time, you know, are you good in the room? Like meeting also like, do you have political tact? That's a big one in terms of when you know you should knock on the door and when you shouldn't, like when you should pipe up with observations, when you shouldn't. Reading the room, basically. This one editor who's, she's a good friend of mine, Molly Goldstein, I, but I started off, I was, she was one of 
the people I assisted early on in my career, um, she would tell the story when she would give the job talk at the edit center. And she'd be like, you know what a really good example of assistant editing is? And she was like, I was working with this one director and we were both kind of really a little grumpy and fighting with each other a little bit. And Jenny just left the room and um, all of a sudden the air conditioning turned on. And it was because it had been the summer and we realized we kind of stopped bickering and realized that we were just sort of hot and grumpy and cranky because it was too hot in the room with all the monitors and 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 because the the facility was probably trying to be too cheap, the, <laughs> you know, with the air conditioning. And she she saw what was happening. She just left. She turned the AC on. That was great assistant editing. It had nothing to do with any of the technical work. That- that's all it is. It's temperature control. That's what assistant it's editing temperature is. Control. That's, the, that's the secret. Exiting and temperature control. Exiting discreetly yes. and not constantly being like, oh, well, can I you know, can I get a scene to edit? Like, can I, and just trying to insert yourself sort of where you may not be welcome at that time because things are very high stress right. in the, that, whatever that creative negotiation is. So you are in the assistant editing trenches, um, fanning people with leaves, turning on the AC, <laughs> all of the right. above, you name it, you've been doing it. What is that pinnacle moment that leads you to moving beyond the assistant editing realm and transitioning into editing? That network that I had built at the Edit Center, like somebody recommended me for a job that they did not want to take. And it was for somebody who was doing a thesis film at NYU grad. Um, and I had at that time been reading a lot of scripts, you know, when you're starting out, if you came up in the indie space, I guess it's a little different. If I had assistant edited on big budget studio things and the kind of introductory editing work I'd be offered would probably be at a different tier. But because I came up the way I did, it's a lot of, you know, scripts that people had been working on for multiple years and a lot of low budget stuff. Uh, at the time, it was also when Mumblecore was like a big thing. Um, and so this script had come to me and it was like a, described as a coming of age story of a 30 something year old rocker, kind of slacker slash rocker in the Pacific Northwest. And I read it and the story, I was like, oh, this person knows how to tell a story. And I had been reading so many scripts. I'm like, oh my God, this is like, there's no story here. There's a lot of bad scripts out there. And 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 one came to me, I was like, oh, this person understands storytelling. It seems pretty important. What's the interview like? So I went to, to the interview and we got on, you know, you have to be able to have a rapport with your director. So I went and the producer was there and the producer really was like, you've done a lot of comic book editing work. So it was the person who gave me my first shot was somebody who could see like, oh, she actually has a lot of experience and who had the ability to see that it was applicable to a different medium. And I was willing to work for cheese. That too. Let's now leave that out. So that was that was my first feature. And it was True Adolescence by Craig Johnson. And I was willing to pick up and go to Seattle while they were shooting. I lived in the like a big house where, you know, not only were it was the DP there, the producer there, the director there, like Mark Duplass was there living with us too. So it gave me the incredibly rare opportunity to actually get to know the actor outside of just the dailies. And, you know, so we'd be sitting around the kitchen table and that we were, you know, airbnb and we edited for a long time. Do you remember that first time you sat down at the monitor to edit that first feature film you were working on, what you were feeling in that moment? Do you remember what your mindset was or where you were at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're shitting your pants. Like, <laughs> you're completely, like, <laughs> Sounds about right. terrified. It's, 
you know, like you're like, what if I screw this up? But like, also I was in the, you know, production office. There's like this grumpy cat. It was super indie. You know, when I would go home to edit, it was like on my own laptop with my laptop on a printer box on top of some cardboard. Nice. The, you know, the we couldn't even afford the G drive. It was like an OWC drive bought off Newegg and it was on the floor. It was like a shaky card table, you know? <laughs> so it was all, it was like super not glam. Right. It's not like I, I think if I had walked in some like edit suite that had like a bank of monitors, I'd probably, the imposter syndrome probably would have been like super out of control. But, um, you know, we were all just there trying to make a movie and, you know, and I think because I got to know the producer and the director really well, and even know the DP and like we would drive, you know, they drop me off at the production office every day and they go to set. Um, so that was like a really, you hear about sort of indie summer camp kind of movie. Like that's really what that felt like. And, you know, so I'll always have a fondness and, you know, but then also there's this like small part of you that's like, oh, finally, I'm finally where I'm supposed to be. Right. Like I've worked really hard to be here. And like, I'm in a place where I'm doing the thing that I know I'm good at, which is, you know, to, to be doing these creative sort of decisions. But, you know, that voice is existing you know, in parallel. And at the same time is like the incredible, like, oh my God, what the fuck am I doing? Like, <laughs> like, who do I think I am? You know, like all of those things. Just swirling um, around in the brain. Synchronously, yeah. 100%. And what I found is, uh, you know, nobody wants to give you your first feature. Nobody wants to be the first one to take that risk. But once you get one, the door opens and then people are like, somebody else took a shot on you. So that that means it's okay to also do that. And also then you have a body of, or you're starting to grow a body of work. They're like, oh, I, I saw that. I like that. I, I saw this, whatever, your seven minute reel of four scenes together and I could see that you're building and you know how to tell a story. As you begin this process and work on this first feature film and then move on to work on a variety of other projects across genres, are you developing a set of rules in regards to what makes a story work, what makes a scene work, especially in those early years when you're still kind of finding your footing? What is the process as you assess what makes a particular story work and making sure the architecture is sound? You know, it always starts at the script because it's always if you're talking about the architecture you're talking about the story at a very root level you're talking about the script and you're talking about the writing and you read the script before you sign on to do the job and the first thing you need to do is make sure that it's sort of emotionally resonating with you to some like you that you buy into it is it believable does it move you and then you're also on a practical level you're thinking can i do this for six months or however long they've given you to edit and there's like a set of professional assessments and there's also a set of creative assessments. You mentioned that you being on the same page as your collaborators is essential. What does being on the same page as a director entail? It doesn't come into place until you meet the director, right? You know, you have to be able to know that that personal rapport and that the chemistry is there. Because if it's not, I'm mean, there are scripts that I've read and I've wept over. I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. I have to work on this. And then the second I meet the director, I'm like, oh, this is not going to work at all because that person's personality and my personality, I could see the chemistry was not there. And I'm like, oh, well, but again, I didn't regret it because I'm like, I even if somehow I were to get hired, I was like, I would have been miserable because that person's like sense of humor doesn't gel with my person's sense of humor. And you're spending a lot of long hours when I'm working on like with that director, working on a feature, you know, that director is like this third most important person in my life. It's like my child, my husband, you know, in varying, you know, sometimes it's my, my husband first, then my child, but it's like my family and then my director. That chemistry has to be there. And you're trying to assess in that interview which is really tricky because it's like trying to sit down with somebody on a first date 
and be like, are you marriage material? And everybody can be good on a first date. You And you don't know what's going to come at you because you don't know what kind of challenges are going to happen on set creatively. You don't know this is like the trickiest thing. It's like, you don't know what kind of politics that you're not seeing or that haven't developed yet um, that are going to directly affect your job. Um, you don't know who is like a creative stakeholder, uh, you know, who's going to be like, you know, has fallen in love with the script and is unwilling to see an alternate version of that play out, even though you and the director are like, no, actually, it it works better this way. Like this thing that we wanted to achieve in the script is actually no longer working for X, Y, and Z. But you have to have, at least have that creative rapport that you you know hope that you're going to have with the director. You have to have a personal chemistry. Um, so I, I know I, you were asking about sort of the creative architecture um, and then I have sort of veered into like how important your collaborators, the choice of your collaborators is. Um, but you have to have both those things, right? One of the things that I really appreciate of your work, besides it being great, is that you have worked in a bunch of different genres. You've cut Rosalind, which is a modern day comedic take on the Romeo and Juliet story, is more of kind of this punchy comedy and then, you know, we look at a film like The Fallout, which is, you know, more a drama about the aftermath of this cataclysmic moment in high schoolers' lives. And you've worked on Master, which is more rooted in horror. As you find your footing when you're working on these new projects, do you consider the quote-unquote genre of which it exists in? How are you finding your footing in terms of the visual language? Do you think about in terms of genre when you're cutting one project versus another and reference points? I think what you think about is sometimes the, again, like I think you're always cutting to your own taste. That's always the mm -hmm. first sort of barometer that you're using as you're cutting. And um, like I just saw uh, Triangle of Sadness the other day. It's so, so funny, right? And it's so savage. Uh, and hilarious in terms of its satire. But yeah. there's a lot of long takes where we're sitting on, there's clearly coverage and we're just sort of hearing the dialogue and we're just sort of watching people squirm a lot and not cutting away. Now I was like, oh, this is so, it felt so Swedish. In my head, I'm like, when they do the American remake of this, they're going to be like, you have to cut, you have to cut more. You I have know, to cut quick faster. Cuts, quick you have cuts. To... It'll be half the duration. Exactly. You know, sometimes uh, there's just a sensibility um, that the studio or that the producers sort of might have, you know, and, and comedy is very timing based and, and it's very important to control that. That's one of those with comedy. If you don't get the timing right initially, it's, it's really tough. Like people can think, Oh, it's not funny. It's not working. And it's like, no. And, and with a lot of, you know, workflow wise, when you're working on a feature, you can kind of cut a little long knowing that you're just going to ha have time to find cut later. Like often I don't do the fine cutting until later because first we have to work out structure and there's no point in spending a lot of time fine cutting a scene. And if, you know, there's big story problems and we're gonna, we might lose that scene or we might need to recontextualize and plop that scene somewhere else. And so um, comedy is certainly a place where you're constantly thinking about timing and trying to get it fast, for the most part fast, at least in this sort of American market. Um, uh, my favorite type of comedy, and I, I don't think I've worked on a lot of hard comedies or like very joke-based comedies, but um, is very character-driven. Uh, that's what I like a lot. Like uh, the Skeleton Twins, a lot of that is very character-driven, having a strong sense of who these people are um, and how they're responding in that actual moment. And so that tends to meet rather than like joke, and you know, or set up and punchline. Like, right. So with Rosalind, the expectation I think was that it would be pretty cutty. And our first early cuts of that were not as cutty. And I thought we're still really funny, but this, you know, the stakeholders wanted us to cut more. And so we did. I think in terms of genre... I'm always just thinking, 
what's the story? Is it working? If it's not working, why? And I'm not necessarily always thinking about sort of the genre expectations um, and how that, you know, how the tropes play in. Sometimes you're thinking a little bit, like if you're working on something that has very tropey kind of conventions, then some you could like lean into those expectations and subvert them, for example. What are some of the essential skills that you've cultivated over the years as you've grown as an editor, especially as it pertains to story building? You have to really be able to problem solve in the edit with what you have, um, or at least feel like you've done the due diligence and exhausted all the options so that you can be at peace with <laughs> the decision that you end up making. And to be like, we did everything that we could, we're going to take that piece of criticism on the chin, like, you know, if, if that comes. But we made this choice because this other thing was more important to protect. And that that's the thing that like mattered more. All the crafty things that you hear about, like setting up, is it paying off? Like, is it? But a lot of what I'm often looking at is like, do I buy it? Does it feel emotionally honest? Like, does this feel natural? Does this, unless they're trying to go for some very specific stylized, heightened kind of tone. Sometimes if I'm reading a script, I will do my own beat sheet and my own breakdown, like on a spreadsheet. And I will write down what is the essential beat of each scene. And that allows you to see, like, at what point is this happening in the story? Should this happen sooner? When you're thinking about hooking an audience and want to effectively invite them to watch a film or show, how do you approach this? There are some issues that just come up over features over and over again, which is like, you know, you're always spending a ton of time on the opening, like every feature I've ever done. You're always spending so much time on that. It's like, you know, how do we get the movie started as quickly as possible in the most entertaining way as possible so that you're not using up people's attention sort of and exhausting it later when you really need them to be leaning in and um, really invested. It's Some of it's just sort of learning to see the the structure underneath the writing. But and a lot of it is just like what what is it emotionally that I'm responding to? Does it feel honest? And then that for me is always the guiding light when I'm doing the assembly during the shooting, is I'm looking at the dailies, and I'm looking at the string out. I'm cutting from the string out. I'm thinking, you know, what did this actor do with that movie, or what does this piece of B-roll that I begged them to get um, that they got on the fly? Like, can I file that away and use that for something else later if we need a breath and some music to let you know, the previous beat resonate out. But a lot of it is just sort of, you know, when you're looking at the dailies and you're choosing like, why am I taking, using this take for this moment as opposed to this take, you know, and it's just what you as a person emotionally respond to and what feels honest to you. And and then, you know, when you have to start cutting with the director, what they respond to isn't always the same thing. So then you go through a period of kind of calibration of like, you know, but I really like this take because, you know, and and it's always about the dialogue that you have, you know, in the room with the director of like, oh, really? That's so interesting. Like, oh, I thought this was really funny. And they were like, oh, no, this is really funny. And it's like, and you have a discussion, but why? When it comes to taste, sometimes taste is just taste and taste trumps things. Sure. Um, but often if the director's like, well, it just feels right. And I'm not always a believer that it just feels right is uh, a sufficient answer. You don't believe in feeling. You feel in data. You know, there's, I think this is a function of having worked with a lot of first-time filmmakers, right? And and what you have when you're starting out in your craft is you, you can have great taste, but what you don't have is craft, right? Because craft com comes from actually practicing and experiencing and executing over and over again, right? And directing is is a really expensive craft to practice. It is. You don't get a lot of opportunities to do it often at the beginning of your career. 
And so um, it takes that sort of accumulated experience that will start to sort of to build the craft, you know, and sometimes and I have this sometimes with like producers like who, you know, have really good taste, but they're also, and they might, you know, have this note about, you know, what you're showing them, but um, what they don't see is like, well, that would be great to do the thing that you suggest, actually don't have the materials to do that. Or if we do that, then actually the thing it's going to, it's going to disrupt something that's happening 30 minutes down the line. If we right. do that, then we're privileging this character instead of this other character. And it's more important that this characters are like beat lands here, you know, and they're, they're not seeing sort of the interconnected web necessarily. They're like focusing on the moment. And this is a very common thing, not just with producers or inexperienced, you know, filmmakers. It's, it's a thing when you show it to people outside the industry, like cold screeners, just audience members, you know, they're giving you feedback back on a certain scene and often it's it's the problem is not necessarily that scene the problem is how you set up the scene you know the problem is you know have you given enough information and context for that and then so the the, the solution isn't always like well we better recut that scene you know it's to be like okay what's the information they have and at what point did they get that information through watching the film to give them emotional context and underpinning and understanding to empathize with this character and for that to feel real or you know sometimes it's like a plot thing or like a, or an exposition thing maybe it's like we cut out too much exposition early on and like can we find a way to reintroduce it in a streamlined manner so like what is the minimum amount of information they need to understand where this person is when they see this person in this scene when you're thinking through all these potential issues that may hinder the audience from going on this journey with this character or feeling the emotional weight that was intended with this scene, how are you not getting lost in the weeds? You know, you're going through your mind, as you said, and thinking, okay, maybe we need more exposition here. It seems very precarious in the sense that you could take something out that maybe actually contributed to the meaning of the story in a profound way in place of something else or rearrange it in a way that maybe sent the process backwards instead of forwards. Do you have any approaches to staying clear and keeping, you know, the trajectory moving forward instead of stalling? The answer is it's impossible to not get lost in the weeds. All right. Sure. You the more you repeat something and watch something and, and internalize it, by the time the edit is over, the film sort of exists fractally for me. You know, like I remember every iteration we ever did. And then I have to sometimes remember, okay, oh, but in this latest cut, we took this scene out or we moved it here. And it sometimes becomes very dangerous at the end of the edit where the director's tired and you're tired. And then sometimes even in the sound mix where you forget how something landed early on and how important something was. Because in your head, it's sort of like you, you take it for granted that it's there. You sort of have to run this checklist of and have faith in like how you responded to things when you first saw them. When I'm cutting something together, like if the scene is not working for like during dailies, like I'll assemble the scene as scripted. Often, if I have time, uh, I will do another pass and I'll call it the JL edit. And, and then I give myself permission to do what I want to it, to make it into the thing that is either the more streamlined version or just the version that's just going to make it more feel like more emotionally honest. Maybe there's a piece of performance that the actor did that was improv that I'm like, oh, what if we took that and it gave us an opening to pivot sort of in a different direction. You're always going to get lost. It's just impossible for it not to happen. But what is often helpful is friends and family screenings. And I'm talking about friends and family screenings, meaning um, 
small screenings where you're giving people questionnaires or you're facilitating a discussion afterwards and trying to get a sense of like, are they receiving the message that you're giving them? And you just talk to them because like, there's no, um, aside from just keeping notes and remembering like, oh, when I saw this in the dailies, like it really made me laugh. Yeah, that's what I think is really fascinating about the process because there's so many mechanics involved in the editing process, but ultimately you're trying to evoke an emotion or feeling. It seems like there's a weird tension between, you know, just thinking about cutting something in the quote unquote right way while simultaneously thinking about how people actually feel when they're watching it. That is something that is endlessly fascinating to me, which is how do you make people care just from the creative choices and the narrative choices that you're making? Like I never get tired of that. And it's always really exciting and always really interesting to try to put that together. And sometimes it's, it takes a lot less than you think it does. One of the sensibilities that I've brought over from comic book editing was just really valuing uh, an economy of storytelling. The comic book format, you're so limited by literally what's on the page and what can fit into a panel. And then the next panel is a jump in time. And you have to be able to trust that the audience is parsing what happened in the gutter between those panels. You have to have faith that they're going to follow and they can put it together. But film is continuous. You know, you're showing continuous movement. And so like when to cut, um, how much do you need to show? How much information do you need to have? Like, how much exposition do you really need? Those things are really important. And often, like, you know, for example, if somebody is bored, if you're getting this feedback that somebody's like bored in the story, in the film, it's like sometimes like you're just not giving them anything to do. You're just making them a passive viewer. How can you make them a less passive viewer? If you can make them work for it a little bit more by not spoon feeding them the exposition, maybe that would be useful because then they're, they're like really have all their senses on as they're watching and they're like, what is happening? Like, what? Like, who is this person? Like, you know, I remember watching this being at a screening and there was supposed to be a scene where somebody had to be very menacing. And this character, who's an incredible character actor, um, I've, and you know she's capable of doing it, but like the scene for me, like wasn't quite having the menace that I knew was intended for that moment. It was supposed to be like a moment of like real like threat. And, and I was like, oh, she's just, she's talking too much. She's talking too much. She just, you know, have to cut a lot of her dialogue out so that the people who are there who know they're in trouble are just stewing in that tension and they don't know what she's thinking. And, you know, I did offer that as a piece of my script. <laughs> but I did, yeah, I kind of threw it away a little bit. I was like, ah, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe consider, you know, a little, a little less dialogue. Because, you know, think about it. You, know, you also have to be, if you are going to offer that prescriptive feedback, you always say like, this is one choice you could take. You don't have to take it. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily know. Nobody knows anything, but you know, <laughs> this is something you might want to try. Has your understanding of what serves a film and what makes a great film evolved over time as you've worked in this space? There's a lot of films you watch, like, oh, these films are breaking all these rules, and they still work. You know, I, I have a certain set of sort of internalized instincts that are honed by experience and craft and just from making a lot of mistakes and figuring out solutions and taking things that are unwatchable and making them mediocre. And sometimes you learn more that way than you do from taking something, like you sometimes learn more taking something from a D to a B minus than you do from taking something from a B plus to a you know, and a like an A minus, like you know, and I think that what I've learned is just to be able to trust what I know and um, what I think and believe in what I have 
sort of believe makes a great film. You know, I think I think I've just learned to trust my internal voice. You know, what I believe is good, and uh, I think you become more sure of what you do. It just becomes ingrained in you, and like like reflex, you know, and and it's hard to. I think take space as a woman of color sometimes, and also as the editor, because the editors are often seen on a systemic level. Level is like very um, expendable in in the film industry. It's hard to sometimes, you know, reconcile that with this feeling of like, oh, I could get fired at any moment, <laughs> or you know, and people and incredible editors, some of the best editors in the industry, like still get fired, and it's not you know, necessarily because they're bad editors. Any creative field where your work is not going to be received the way you're hoping it's going to be received, um, you have to find a way to deal with rejection, right? You have to find a way to deal with failure. And often, you know, people are always talking about failures where you learn. Failure is where you learn the most. I've got one last question. You've, you've noted that, you know, the biggest influence of your past life is as a comic book editor. Do you still engage with comic books? I, I do. Not as much as I used to. A little known fact, I am married to a comic book writer and illustrator. There's no escape. There's no escape. I do still engage, not as much as I used to, but my husband, Cliff Chang, who co-created Paper Girls, and he just did this comic book called Catwoman Lonely City, and it was the first thing that he he wrote in its entirety. He wrote it, he drew it, he lettered it, he colored it, it was, did all the covers. It was very unusual, but... Um, that gave us the experience of everything that he wrote. Uh, I got to read and give feedback, and um, that's a whole separate podcast, which is that's right. Um, working creatively with your romantic partner. I mean, that's uh, a series you, right there. Honestly, that's a series. You know, I still I love the art form. I still have a lot of friends in that world, um, and so it's it will always be a part of me, and it continues to be a part of me. That's a beautiful thing, Jenny. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents, available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes.